Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this week's performance of My Favourite Flop. At this time, we ask that you turn up the volume on all cell phones, laptops, and car stereos as loud as possible. Please be advised that this production could contain Broadway shows with overall financial losses, those with less than 250 performances, some that had no national tour after their initial Broadway engagement, and Broadway shows that never actually opened on Broadway. And now, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We're so happy that you decided to join us again. I'm your host, Christina. And I'm your other host, Bobby. <laughs> and welcome to another episode of My Favorite Flop. Now, on this episode, uh, we're going to be talking about, I think, probably one of the most famous flops we're going to cover uh, this first season, right? It's definitely become my new favorite flop. Oh, right. You've been texting me as we've been working I'm on it. I'm actually like, really excited about this one. <laughs> right. Absolutely. But before we jump in, uh, Christina, I'm going to ask you first this week. <laughs> what have you been listening to? Well, Bobby, I went and listened to another song cycle that I really love that I f don't know most people know about. It's called Unwritten Songs by Michael Bruce, who's a Scottish composer. Right. And it came out in 2010, but it's got some great songs on it. Some standouts are like Portrait of a Princess. It's all about this Disney princess and that it talks about all the things that are not Disney-like about her. Um, it's very funny, very silly, really smart lyrics. Um, but then he also does a parody song on the song cycle, which is very appropriate to our show um, from company it's uh not getting married today but it's right. parodied with all of the musical theater titles that like have ever existed including a bunch of flops okay in fact in the second verse she says and bless i hit when it flops and it stops to recuperate and then she goes on and does the pattern section with all of the names and titles of these shows. It's quite funny. It's really smart. But I love this song cycle because it has something for everybody, right? right. It's got a great tenor song. It's got a great Barry tenor song. You know, it's got stuff that's very Disney-like. It's got other stuff that's pop. It's got traditional. Um, there's a great song called Continental. If you're a high soprano, go look it up. It's a great version. Um, it's a great song instead of something like Litter and Be Gay. Right. So it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, and he's a really fun and unique composer. Michael Bruce, also, if you're listening, <laughs> I adore your work. Well, it's it's well totally on brand for you to bring that up because of the famous song. Uh, when we actually started working on this podcast, you brought that song up and you're like, I have to play this for you. And I think you've actually played it for me a couple of times over the last year. Uh, but Probably. I'm excited that our listeners can now go back and listen to it. OK, Bobby, what have you been listening to? OK, so I don't want to give it away, but I decided to go on brand for today's episode. So I know oh, we're going to go through the clues in a second. But I, I really wanted to, to listen to this one because it's a show that I don't think I've ever fully appreciated before, but it's one that I should. And I listened to the original Broadway cast recording of A Little Night Music this week. Oh, 
be still my heart. I think it's great. And maybe because I'm older. But look, essentially, it's it's a musical about a bunch of fancy rich people being ridiculous and singing soprano. Yeah. Miller's That's, Son has to be one of my favorite songs. Oh, and I'd always love that. There are yeah. songs from Night Music that I had loved. But yeah, I listened to the OBC a couple times because I was like, I, I really want to get into this. Mm. Uh, and then I found, um, you know, some other concert performances of stuff from the show. Uh, one of my favorites is from, I think, one of the Sondheim birthday concerts where they do a weekend in the country. And it's with the most amazing cast ever. But they're dressed in the tackiest 80s formal wear. So <laughs> They come out with oh. big 80s hair and these choices awful were made gowns and things, but then they're singing a weekend in the country gorgeously. And you're like, choices are made, but it just it made the just ridic- close your eyes. Just close your eyes and listen. But it made the ridiculous of the ridiculousness of fancy rich people singing soprano even more ridiculous. And so Yes. Well, from here we should definitely go to clues. Right, because it totally links to tonight's show. I did it on purpose. You gave it away. Okay. Okay. So our first clue, ladies and gentlemen, uh, to recap, we gave that at the end of our last episode, was this musical once had the same title as another famous Broadway flop. Right. Which was Sideshow, which may feature on the show one day. Oh, definitely. And then we followed that up with clue number two, which was on Twitter. Irving Berlin, Frank Lesser, Richard Rogers, and Julie Stein all invested in the original production of this musical. Which is crazy to think, like, these luminaries invested in this one show, right? I know, right? That's kind of crazy. Especially a bunch of other composers. You don't see that. We'll see. Um, Which leads to clue number three, which was on Instagram. uh, And it was a photo clue. And it was a picture of a cookie jar. It's my favorite one so far. (laughs) Clue number four, we had that really interesting blog post by Bobby about famous flops directed by their book writers. And our fifth and final clue that we're going to give to you right now is that this musical was also, emphasis on the also, <laughs> conceived <laughs> as a vehicle for Barbara Streisand. Drum roll, please. Drum roll, please. <gasps> Anyone can whistle. Except Christina. Wait, can you actually not whistle? I really can't. <laughs> like, so, okay. So not only should you actually star on the show one day, but you legitimately... I legitimately cannot whistle. You legitimately can't whistle. So let's jump in because we have a bad habit of just talking about all the things about the show. Instead and then of we're going over the synopsis. So we're going to start with the synopsis this week, friends. And because this is a three-act musical, we're going to... We really got to go over it. (laughs) We got to break it up. Three-act musical, like... (laughs) Right. (laughs) Okay, so the synopsis to this show is a little schizophrenic. Pun intended. Pun intended. Um, It's essentially about a town that has gone bankrupt because they invented a thing. We never find out what that thing is. Nope, never. Uh, But the town has gone bankrupt because they invented a thing that... Never wears out. So once people buy one, they never need to buy another one. Um, And the mayoress, uh, because the mayoress is a woman, uh, which is super rare for 1965, right? Super rare for a woman. Uh, I love it. But the mayoress of the town, Cora, has taken that debt on herself, and it is now up to her to turn things around. And then randomly, (laughs) there is this quote-unquote miracle that happens just outside of the town when a girl licks 
a rock <laughs> <laughs> and a magical fountain appears and Cora decides to sell it to all of the tourists uh, as the fountain of youth. Right. Now, for some reason, half the town is in quotes sane and the other half is insane or as they like to call them, cookies. Cookies. And they live in the asylum run by the nurse, Faye Apple. Think like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Except Faye isn't quite Nurse Ratchet, but close. Um, Cora goes to Faye and asks her to line up the cookies and have them be cured by the fountain. Right. And of course, all of the cookies escape and they mingle with the locals. And one actually disguises himself as a doctor, Mr. Hapgood. And Hapgood is put in charge by Cora of finding the cookies in the crowd. And that's the end of Act One. Ta-da! So Act Two... Then steps up the crazy. Uh, Faye, the nurse, shows up in disguise as this French woman who's there to investigate whether the miracle is real or not. She decides to seduce Hapgood so he will expose the miracle as fake. Ugh. He sees through the disguise and Hapgood tries to convince Faye to tear up the insane files and let them be free. Then he produces his own file confirming he is a cookie. Inspired by how good Faye tears up the files. And on to Act 3, because there's three of them. Uh, so Cora, the mayoress, in case you forgot about her, decides to use Hapgood as an escape goat for the fake miracle. Um, and that leads to a mob going after Hapgood and Faye. And they end up at the quote-unquote miracle rock and discover it's actually fake themselves. Uh, and then there is this letter that the governor has sent uh, that says 49 of the cookies specifically, uh, <laughs> need to be put back into the cookie jar, a.k.a. the insane asylum. Uh, so then they do a ballet. Natural. Like you do. And in this ballet, Faye is captured and exposed. Cora then threatens Faye that she will have to throw 49 random people in if Faye doesn't identify the real cookies. Faye concedes, except that she, can't, except that she will not identify Hapgood. Hapgood asks Faye to run away with him. She can't bring herself to do it. Right. And so the town just goes back to the way that it was. And right. Faye ends up back <laughs> at the cookie jar and meets a new nurse uh, who's actually more rigid than she is. And uh, she totally realizes that she doesn't want to become that person. Uh, and so then she runs off to the Miracle Rock in search of Hapgood. And then she manages to whistle, unlike me, and Hapgood is there and they kiss Wee! So it's a bit of a messy plot. You know, just your standard musical theater comedy, right? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, th this was written by Arthur Lawrence uh, and directed by Arthur Lawrence because yes. we had that, you know, floss written, <laughs> written uh, or directed by their book writers. Right. Um, and music and lyrics were by... Stephen Sondheim. Stephen Sondheim, which I, I think that's why it puts it as one of the most... Probably, I think, famous flops that we're doing this season. Yeah, and it's also his first original musical. Which is crazy. It's, it is the elusive original musical that everyone... Every composer tries to figure out. Every right? composer, and then every theater fan is, like, obsessed with, why, why aren't there original musicals? But I always have this conversation with people. Do, do we really want original musicals? Because a lot of times... 
sometimes it's hard to find a way to wrap it up, which well, is kind of how this plot feels a bit, y- you know? Yeah, because you're not only crafting a brand new story, you are crafting a brand new story and then adapting it into a piece of musical theater. So yeah. you have like double the double duty of the job. Um, yeah. And uh, you don't have any, you know, when you adapt a novel, you adapt a book, you adapt, you know, a famous story. Right. There's it's a history. Got a beginning, middle and end. Right. And it has been tested with the public, you know. Oh, that's a good point. I hadn't even thought about that. <laughs> They're like, that That story works. So I uh, like it. <laughs> but anyone can whistle. This is one of those, you know, this is a show in the research that I did uh, for today's episode. You know, I read... Because it's Sondheim, there are biographies about him and there are yeah. dissertations and there are there are very hoity-toity like looks at his <laughs> career and his writing. Um, you know, a lot of people said because it played so it only played seven performances, right? Nine performances. Nine performances. Yeah. Uh that this was one of those shows that became so iconic after it flopped that more people say they saw it than actually did. And if everyone right. who says they saw it actually saw it, it would have been a big fat hit. I uh, saw that quote from about five different blog posts, which really makes me laugh. It is yeah. obviously an infamous quote for this show. For this show. And you can say that about other shows, too. But yeah, I think that's hilarious. But it's because the cast album is so lovely and... um uh, the songs. Well, I also think, I I mean, yes, it is a convoluted plot, right? Let, I'll give you that. But the other thing about this I found really interesting is that this is a musical that really, and I, you don't always see this with musical comedy, but really holds a mirror to society. Right. Um, I think it's ahead of its time, personally. I do think that there are obvious problems, but they are, there are ways to fix those problems, right? which is remarkable because of how young Stephen Sondheim was in his writing career. And for those who don't know, Oscar Hammerstein was actually Stephen Sondheim's mentor. Right. Um, and so when they approached uh, Stephen about doing Gypsy and West Side and they only wanted him to work on lyrics, he called Oscar and was like, ah, should I do this? He was like, yes, you should be writing lyrics. That's what you should be doing. And then uh, before a funny thing happened on the way to the forum, he passed away. And that's the first time we really see um, Stephen Sondheim write, composing and writing lyrics, right? And then this was actually the first time that he was able to have full control of the story. Right. And so we see a massive change in, in where he started with these big epics and these traditional musicals. And we see the shift into who eventually Sondheim becomes as a composer and as a lyricist and as an artist. Yeah. Well, I, I had read uh, in one of, in one of those dissertations where Stephen Sondheim had been quoted and he had said that even though he had written music and lyrics for forum, he was built last of all the creatives and mm. he felt with the process. Um, there was only maybe one or two songs that he felt really showcased what he wanted to bring to the table. Otherwise mm. he was just plugging things into someone else's show. You know, right. he was writing songs, you know, because people like to analyze Sondheim shows because he'll, he'll take a, a melody or a theme and weave it into the entire thing. Yeah. Speaking of night music, the entire thing is waltz. I believe oh, like yeah. so with forum he's like yeah there was nothing we were just writing songs uh but with this <laughs> one this one it was super exciting for him to really work I I would say that this is probably his first real show like you said um yeah. as as composer and lyricist and um 
I know a lot of people like to give company for being the credit of where Sondheim really found his sound. I think he refined it. I think this yeah. is where he discovered his sound. Company, he's just like, Agreed. okay, let me do it better. Uh, yeah, I mean, the song Sinful in this show is fascinating and has oh so gosh. many layers to it. I can't even, like, I need to take time just dissecting that song alone. I, and it's th- 13 minutes. the show must be so much fun because you really or get to nightmare. dig in. Uh, well, maybe. I guess it depends on what kind of brain you have for directing. Right. But I I just, a simple is so brilliantly written and for a satire piece is perfect. It's oh, absolutely perfect. You it know? is genius. It, it is. is genius. And um, yeah, I can't even imagine how something like that is constructed with with the dialogue, the music, the lyrics, and everything. I mean, that really that really is the result of of a close um, collaboration. Right. So yeah, it's clear that these are two collaborators who really enjoyed working with each other. You know, you Definitely. look at something like Simple. You have to enjoy your writing partner to create <laughs> something like that, right? Well, and it also feels like there's this momentum at the top of the piece, which um, doesn't necessarily see itself to fruition by the end. But it's interesting how this show really challenged what a musical could be. Right. It changes the aesthetic of a musical at that point in history. And in the same season, we actually had Fiddler come out. Oh, right. And Fiddler was like a slap in the face to the musical theater community because it opens and you're in the show. There's no overture. Like all of a sudden it changes all the rules. Now, Fiddler obviously went on to be a big, massive hit. But it's interesting that these young voices, these young composers were like, no, it's time. Right. It's in the air. We got we got to move forward. We got to we got to challenge the system. This show opened at the Majestic Theater, right? Majestic. And across the street at the St. James was Hello, Dolly, which, you know, is... <laughs> as traditional is, as it gets. <laughs> as traditional as it gets. And for any Sondheim, like, super fan in the group, uh, if you're a fan of Merrily We Roll Along, um, we obviously are because our logo is based <laughs> on the original artwork. Um he rewrites history a bit. Their show, you know, Musical Husbands, I think is what it's called, opens this same season of, of mm. Dolly and Funny Girl and Fiddler on the Roof. But unlike Anyone Can Whistle, their show that was meant to push brown boundaries and things like that ends up being a hit. So even right. though Merrily was not, sadly, uh, <laughs> he was trying to rewrite history. You know, the, the whole idea of opening doors is really supposed to reflect Sondheim, how Prince Arthur Lawrence and Mary Rogers and kind of their pounding the pavement um, yeah. during this time period and their ideals of wanting to change theater. So I love that. I love that you brought that up. I also think that this challenges musical theater at the time because, yes, we were seeing things like Hello, Dolly uh, or Funny Girl or even um, Once Upon a Mattress, where you have these strong female leads. But this one has two strong female leads two. that are very unique female types. And I think it's one of the reasons this show has become my new favorite flop is because I look at Faye and like, you actually like break down who her character is. And like, that's me all day long. Anyone who knows me, (laughs) anyone who knows me knows how awkward I can be in a social situation and how difficult it is for me to make friends. Right. And so I, I don't know that I've really experienced this type of female lead in a musical before. And which I never really recognized when I would just listen to the songs or whatever. It wasn't until I actually 
dove into this show that I, I started to understand that. And then you have Cora, who is just like, oh, she is that alpha female. Hear me roar. I will take you down. And well, you have to love that. You love it. And it's like it's like the the proud mama bear of so many amazing complex Sondheim leading ladies that would oh. come later in his career. Oh, yeah. I which... understand why Elaine Stritch was like, I regret. I regret it. Well, okay, yeah. So <laughs> the pre-Broadway, they write this show. They're excited. They're going to do this. Um, they struggle raising money, which is why all the composers who wanted to make all the composers. Sondheim a thing decided to put their own money into it because they felt it was important to support this dude's work. Uh so they're, they're putting the show together. They offer it to Elaine Stritch, who is one of Stephen Sondheim's friends. Uh, Go-tos. Cora. And then Barbara Streisand, who uh, was in I Can Get It For You Wholesale that Arthur Lawrence had directed on Broadway. And basically, he kind of made her a star with, you know, Miss Marmelstein. Hmm. And was like, hey, you want to do this show? And for all of our listeners who've listened to past episodes, we know what she did instead. <laughs> Funny girl. Funny girl. Oh. <laughs> choices were made. Good choices. choices were made. <laughs> were made. Um, but then so they end up with three movie stars, which today we think of, oh, man, they hit the mother load. But back in the 1960s, that was pretty unheard of. Yeah. Um, so, Christina, who did they end up casting in the show? Well, they had Angela Lansbury, famously, right, mm -hmm. who had just uh, been nominated or won her Oscar. Um, Something like that. Somewhere in there. Um, and then they had Lee Remick, who I actually had no idea had done any theater, but she ended up winning a Tony later, uh, later. for Wait Until Dark, which is a great play and ran forever. Um, but I know her because of The Omen, which is just like the complete opposite. So, so, good. Anyone comes so good. I think this might have been the only musical she did on Broadway. I think no, she did she, some musical theater elsewhere. She did... Um, well, she did another Sondheim musical on Broadway. Well, she did Follies in Concert, but I think that was oh, at the Philharmonic. Oh, is that what it was? Follies in Concert. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then it's Harry... Oh, help me, Bobby. Uh, Harry Guardino, who was also a movie star. And right. so they ended up with these three people, uh, none of which you'd starred in a Broadway musical before. No, and Angela Lansbury always... She's done a ton of musical theater on film. But she always, especially at this point, she had, um, but she always considered herself an actor who can sing. Right. right? Well, had she had she done any movie musicals yet other than the Harvey Girls? Well, actually, oh. one of her very first jobs ever was in some I couldn't even tell you what it is. It's from like the 40s. Oh, my goodness. But she's like singing in a showgirl costume with a big feather fan. Oh, I've seen she, this. It's it's a yeah. I think we had to watch it in musical theater history. It's cool. So. Um, but yeah, she's singing a standard about bluebirds. Um, but yeah, she's like dancing with this okay. fan. And it's very not <laughs> Angela Lansbury. <laughs> and she's like 18. <laughs> Oh, wow. That's insane. Yeah. yeah. Little Yellow Bird. That was the name of it. Dorian Gray. Pictures of Dorian Gray. Sorry. Got it. That's the movie she did. Um, so she had done it before. And she I actually I found an interview with her okay. uh, talking about anyone can whistle all these years later. And uh, apparently she originally was like, I don't know if that this is a good idea, guys. And so she was like, OK, I'll go sing. And she's saying. In London Town uh, as her song of choice. And uh, she talks about it. When she auditioned, she had said to them, I don't sing. 
So I'm concerned about doing this show. And retrospectively, she says that she was singing at the top of her range the whole time. She listens back to the cast album and it scares her. Oh, no. (laughs) She's like, it just isn't healthy. It's not a healthy sound. And apparently she didn't sing for an entire year after this show closed. Oh, wow. Yeah. Which is rough. That's scary. That's traumatizing. Right. And she talks about how uh, Herb Green, who's the conductor slash music soup on it, apparently really put Lee, Remick, Harry and Angela through their paces with this because they're not singers. And he really wanted singers, I guess. And so Angela tells a story about how (laughs) it's just sounds horrifying to me. So he comes up and grabs her by the larynx. What? And has her sing over it. And I'm just like, who? That's not how you teach technique. What? I know. I don't understand. It just sounds like a nightmare. And apparently there was a lot of drama during the rehearsals and the lead up to Broadway. And it was it was a lot. Um, And she said all she could do was just keep her head down and like learn her lines and trying to remember what she needed to do. Oh, my goodness. Well, it's so crazy because she became like the leading lady of musical comedy on Broadway after this. Right. Well, and she says she loved working with Stephen Sondheim. And that led to a great relationship with him. Right. um, Because he believes in actors first. Right. I mean, we see that with people like Elaine Stritch, right? Man, I'll oh, listen to I, that lady all day long. Absolutely. Well, yeah. So it, I I had no idea that the <laughs> music just... supervisor was grabbing Oof. her throat. Um, uh, but yeah. So when when Elaine and when Barbara turned the project down, um, Arthur Lawrence wanted these movie stars. And I think I had read somewhere... Uh, where Stephen Sondheim was talking about it. And they're like, so who came up with the idea of Angela Lansbury? And he said, oh, it was Arthur Lawrence. And and he was like, I'd never heard her sing, but I think she might be able to do it. And so uh, audition, like you said, um, her and Lee Remick actually auditioned the same afternoon. Stephen Sondheim was flown from Copenhagen. Uh, I don't know why he was in Copenhagen, but uh, flew to L.A. to audition them and they cast them on the spot. And uh yeah, like like you said, there was a lot of struggles in the rehearsal and the pre-Broadway tryout to this. Um, they almost fired Angela Lansbury at one point uh, because she was struggling yeah. so much uh, with the production. And not only vocally, I think I think she and Arthur Lawrence, who cast her, wanted her in the show, mm-hmm. uh, didn't see eye to eye, right, on how they wanted on how this. how chorus should be played, yeah. Right, um, and so they, they fought a lot. She worked with them again, but... <laughs> Because she starred in the revival of Gypsy that he directed and won a Tony Award for it, uh, which crazy Just casual. <laughs> that that comes out of this experience. But yeah, she uh, is really insecure and self-conscious. Right. And yeah, um, and I think there's a lot of pressure on Arthur and Stephen at this point. Right. Like they couldn't get the backing and then it's not working, but right. they're still going to Broadway. And I'm sh- and this is like like we talked about. It's Stephen's first time out the gate. Right. You know, and, well, and then and scary. Then, and this production, uh, the out-of-town trade in Philadelphia was, like, cursed. I think at their first preview, there was a fire in the ladies' room, so they had to evacuate the theater. And then the following night, one okay. of the... Who said McBeezy's name? Someone said something, because literally the following night, one of the actors during the dan- one of the dance numbers ran too far and fell into the orchestra pit <gasps> onto a musician who then had a heart attack and died. So that happened during the preview uh, oh my gosh <laughs> and then one of one of angela's co-stars um 
who played uh, Controller Shub, uh, Henry Lasco. Um, he ended up having a heart attack, not because of the show. Oh my uh, gosh. But during that out of town tryout. And oh, so, Lord in heaven. A lot of crazy stuff happened. There's a lot of crazy stuff. But then they do make it to Broadway, right? Like they get there, it opens, and the critics hate it. Yeah, they did. I don't think they I don't think they quite got what Stephen Sondheim and Arthur Lawrence were trying to do. Yeah, um, I went and read that New York Times review and whew, they were yeah. like, Angela Lansbury is boring. And I'm like, wait, do me. they really say that? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. They basically say that, like, Cora keeps coming out, but they don't know why. And they don't none of her songs are interesting. And I was oh, like, she has some of the, what? okay, well, because the way that this show is constructed, uh, Stephen Sondheim gave her all of these, like, Kay Thompson-esque uh, mm. numbers, which I love, Me and My Town, which opens the oh, show. Oh, it's so good. It's one of my favorite <sighs> things, and of course, reading these dissertations, you, you, like, delve into the, like, intellectual side of it, and how she's singing this jazzy, bluesy thing, yep. when she's being honest about the town, but then when she's being a jerk about everybody, it yeah. goes into this weird mambo. It does. <laughs> with these backup singers who are just called the boys, and they come out and boys. dance with her, but they're not, like... There, there's no point to the plot other than they are literally the mayor's backup dancers because it's an Look, absurdist. Look, man, everybody needs an assistant. Why <laughs> so can't she, they be four hot men? I mean, and they're usually cast as really hot men. I'm just saying. <laughs> so she has that. She gets to sing a parade in town. She gets, oh, which so I good. Which, fun fact, it's one of three songs on Broadway that year about parades because... <laughs> You had Hello Dolly before the parade passes right. by, and then Funny Girl, Don't Rain on My Parade. And, oh my gosh, that's hilarious. There's a lot. And of... it's, there's similarities, not to, you know. Right. They all but there are similarities of... between those three melodies. Where is our mashup, Christina? We need there to... needs to, we'll do a mashup. We're going to do a mashup. Goals. We're going to try hus- and do Your a husband mashup. has to sing the third part. Fine. <laughs> um, but she has such great material. I, I, can't, I can't believe that they said she was boring. Well, my... and my favorite is the cookie ballet. It's classic Angela Lansbury on the Cookie Ballet. It's so good. But here's the thing. I'm not a big fan of the dream ballet sequences and shows. Right. And this pokes fun at it to like it is the best way to poke fun at a dream ballet sequence. Well, I am in love with it. Well, and so that's what the show does. It's these young guys and they're trying to write this musical comedy that breaks all the norms and they totally poke fun at the Rodgers and Hammerstein mold. Uh, They poke fun at Leonard Bernstein, West Side Story, yep. with some of, of that stuff. Uh, they poke fun of of Gypsy. They poke fun of a lot of their past works and things that they had been associated with. Yeah. So they really took a, you know, a sharp quill to to their satire to really you know, well, to show. Well, and it's interesting to me that the critics hated this, but everyone loved Fiddler, which also did a lot of poking the bear, not in a satire way, but in we're changing things now, right? Right. So and that came out later in the year and this is at the beginning of the year. So it's it's just interesting that those things happen. And at the time, there was um, there was a lot of uh, stuff going on in pop culture. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The Vietnam War had started. But then we also had the Civil Rights Act had been signed into law by Lyndon B. Johnson. You know, you had the we got rid of the poll tax. We're still dealing with the British invasion. So mods and rockers and all this stuff and none of it relates in any way, shape or form to what anyone can whistle is talking about. Right. Right. And I think that things like Fiddler 
dealing with the Second World War and what was coming right. is very much um, cathartic about what was going on with the Vietnam War. Probably there's probably parallels there that people could relate to and sympathize with and feel empathy with each other. Right. Whereas this is complete satire and making fun of some people it, that people love. <laughs> well, and it's so intelligent that a lot of it goes over your head. You yeah. know, again, reading these academic works about the piece, I discovered stuff that I, I've listened to this cast album so much because the performances are iconic. For people who've never started musicals, Lee Remick, or at least never done musicals on Broadway, Lee Remick and Angela, I think, are fierce on this oh, recording. Phenomenal. Lee but Remick you, in this is absolutely spectacular. I don't know how she didn't do like 20 other Broadway musicals. I don't know either. I'm actually a... kind of surprised she didn't get nominated for this, but here we are. Yeah. Well, you okay, so you brought up Simple, right? And Simple uh, is the sequence where he is going around. It's the end of Act 1. Um, and he's going around and he's trying to determine and put in groups of who's crazy, who's not crazy, and he's actually doing something else. Uh, but there's so much biting satire and oh. commentary of America and the people and the people sitting in the audience. And one thing that pointed out, you know, it has been brought up before. Stephen Sondheim hasn't really written a lot of, of or much at all that has dealt with race. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, he hasn't written a show that deals with the African-American experience in the United States. He hasn't written, his shows don't, haven't done that. But this show, I don't know, did you catch on that entire phrase that totally bit in on racism in America? In no, Simple? I don't think I caught that. So in one of the interviews that Hapgood gives, uh, he's like, what's your job? And in the original cast, it was a it was an African-American performer who said, my job is sitting on buses, uh, sitting in restaurants or whatever. Some of the lyrics are like dark is bad. Bad is this, whatever. <gasps> oh, and it's, you're right. Yeah. And it's supposed to be this um, uh, this look, this this commentary like this yeah. is even after all of this stuff we've we you know slavery has been abolished in the United States. We're right, working our way through. This is also coming out in the middle of the civil rights movement. Right, he, you know they're trying to say something about it, and I think it just went over everybody's heads. Wow, everybody's heads. Well, and I like I said at the beginning of the episode, this show is ahead of its time completely, mm -hmm. um, and I think that. It, there's a lot that can be done to save it. And I'm really actually shocked that they haven't done a proper revival of the show. I mean, they've done stuff like the Carnegie Hall production. Right. Um, Encores uh, with Casey Nicola. And interestingly enough, Encores had the complete opposite reaction from the press. The press loved Encores. They talked right. about how brilliant Donna Murphy was in this role and how she's the best thing on Broadway at the time. And yet she's only on, it was only happening for one weekend. Um, but like, she was the best thing to see that year. Um, and they loved Casey Nicola's energy that he brought to the show with his direction and, and his choreography. And I actually really like the simplification of the show in terms of like the set. It's all very simple and um, it's about the people and about making images with the people, which I think is important with the right. commentary of the show. And I know part of that is because it's encores and... We don't right. need, we have orchestra on stage and we don't get a full set, but I think that there's something to simplifying and kind of going to black box theater with this show specifically. Yeah, it's been popular in concert form. You brought up Carnegie Hall. Um, so 
to to get into the Carnegie Hall, one of the main reasons it happened, you know, this show flops on Broadway after you said nine performances, right? Yeah. And uh, the cast recording was uh, recorded by Columbia Records the day after. Post. That's crazy. Yeah, the day after. And, you know, this was at a time where the big record labels, because it was Columbia, it was RCA, it was, you know, it was it was the big dudes who did Broadway albums. That doesn't happen anymore uh, because they were pop music back then, popular music. Uh, the president of Columbia Records decided to still record it. He had a clause in his contract that said, if the show doesn't do well, I don't have to record this cast album. They also had protections back then that they could record them and then just not release them. And there Mm. are some pretty famous ones from this time period that were recorded and then just sat on the shelf. But the president of Columbia Records, not just the Broadway division, but the whole shebang, was like, "This, this is too important. We need to preserve Stephen Sondheim's score. And so made that happen. And one of the reasons in 1995 they did this concert, which was technically a benefit for the gay men's health crisis uh, for AIDS research, um, was so that they could finally record the entire score to uh, Anyone Can Whistle. Uh, and so Columbia Records was was intricately involved with this one-night-only event that had... Oh, so they were involved in the Carnegie Hall production. Yeah, they were huge uh, stars. Madeline Kahn played Cora. Uh, Bernadette Peters, who by this point was a Sondheim-leading lady herself, played Faye. Uh, and I think probably... Perfect casting for that. Literally the best person who's played it, I think, in, in the major production so far. I think. Well, I don't know. I didn't get to see Lee Remick's okay. production, but I... I I Imagine would argue it that it, she she may be the best. Okay, I mean okay. it's a it's it's <laughs> right up there with the two of them. Uh, and then Scott yeah. Bakula, who was famous on TV for Quantum Leap, um, <laughs> but you know we got the the whole score. We got you know all the musical interludes. We got the songs that didn't make it to the cast album. They even put cut songs in, uh, which was kind of fun. And mm. Angela Lansbury, uh, you know, uh, narrated it. It was. It was a cool event. And for people who were fans of the show and fans of the songs, it was nice to see some love to it back then. But then, you know, it's just more concerts. It's just lots and lots of concerts. No yeah. full on revival, which is strange. And um, I think that it could be revived. It could really be revived. Do. Especially after this 2020 nonsense. So speaking of reviving the show, you know, there was a lot of talk when the Encores production happened uh, that it could transfer to Broadway Mm. and that they could flesh it out into a full on thing. But it just never came to fruition. If the show were to be revived, what do you think needs to be fixed to make it successful? Well, I think that you have to revisit how the storylines individually end. Um, Cora's just kind of filters off and like fizzles out, um, which after all of these big epic numbers that she has, doesn't really make sense. Okay. Um, and they need to find a way to wrap her up and really either she needs to make a big change as a character. Right. Or she needs to get meaner. Like it needs to go one way or the other. It kind of gets flim flammy at the end. Right. Um, and then I actually really like how they round out, um, phase storyline i just think that they need to maybe flesh out that final scene where she realizes oh my gosh i don't i don't want to be this person i want to jump off the cliff and see who will catch me and free myself from my own restraints right Right. and so i think that that can be explored a little bit more because it's really about act three where the show falls apart and so i think that's where they need to go back and revisit it and i actually think what would help is if they get a female playwright um, involved. 
Yeah, I think Arthur Lawrence's book needs some edits. I, I, you know, sometimes we, and I think we've already done this before, and I know we will on this podcast where we're going to say, just throw out the book completely. But, uh, you know, Arthur Lawrence, I think is such a, um, his DNA is so into this project, uh, just as much as sometimes is. So I would hate to see it completely thrown out, but it does. You need a red pen. And um, I know they've tried. So there was a revisal of the material around 2003 that, changed it from a two a three-act musical to a two-act musical. Mm-hmm. And apparently, I couldn't find the script anywhere, so I couldn't read this new version. Uh, but apparently, it's what you get when you license the show. Uh, and what I read, it said that there was much more focus on making Faye the primary protagonist of the piece instead uh-huh. of putting equal focus on Cora, Faye, and Hapgood. So it kind of allowed her to be the centerpiece of what this story was trying to convey yeah i could see that being a thing and it's it the encores production actually felt like they were trying to do that well sutton foster so yeah and we all know how much i love sutton i adore that woman so much and i think she's absolutely marvelous i do not think this was her role and part of that is encores like you get a week sure (laughs) and this is complicated material sure Um, but i actually i think that I think it does a disservice to take away the focus from Cora as well. Okay. And I and I say that because she is a woman that we all know in our lives, right? Right. We know that woman. I have worked with that woman. <laughs> and yes, they you exist have. and they are real. And you know what? We should celebrate it. We should. And we should find a way to make it equal equal partnership. I mean, right. uh, there are a couple of female playwrights that actually had come to mind when I was doing work on this episode. Um, one of them being Liz Feldman, okay, who who wrote Dead to Me, and it has two female leading ladies who are not the same right. <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. They do not deal with problems the same way. They clash heads all the time. And I think that she actually would be able to come in and find a way to make them both shine. And maybe even intertwine their storytelling a little bit more, which I think would help that. Um, And again, I think that's one of the reasons why this kind of failed is you had a white man writing for these two very strong female personalities. Right. Um, And there's just certain things that men don't understand about female inner relationships, which are weird and complicated. And I don't understand them half the time. Right. So (laughs) finding a female writer who understands them, but a couple of the other ones were like Phoebe Waller bridge, of course, (laughs) because it's Phoebe Waller. Sure. Come on, man. Um, And like Lynn Nottage, who I dreams, dreams, (laughs) just write everything, please. All the things. But I do. I really think that if you get a female writer like this who really understands inner female relationships, I think that this story could be fixed. Yeah. Well, OK, so I I, I want to hear your thoughts on one of the cut songs, because I think you may have listened to it. Um, it is the song There's Always a Woman. And it is a song that was cut in Philadelphia. They put it back into the show for the Carnegie Hall concert. Uh, It also was in the Patty and Audra version at the Ravina Festival. But my favorite recording of There's Always a Woman is from the 1999 revival of Putting It Together with Carol Mm. Burnett and Ruthie Henshaw, who do, I think, the most fierce version of that song ever. Do you feel that that in a revised version that that because it would be the only time for these two women of the material that Songheim wrote to sing together, but it's pretty vicious, you know? Oh, yeah. And I think like I 
was just saying, I think that intertwining these two women's storylines is integral to making this show work. Right. They really avoided it for whatever reason in the original Broadway production where they just kind of kept them parallel to each other, never commenting on each other okay. until that very end. And that I think that's why it feels so disjointed because you're like, but do you two even know each other? Like, do you even have an opinion about one another? <laughs> well, and they cut the song, the, the one that song where they interact with each other. The opinions. Um, and I think, yes, I think that absolutely that needs to be put back in. Yeah, I think so, too. That's that's the feeling I get from it. I know people have opinions about it. So I wanted to see what yours was, especially as a woman, because Sondheim wrote it, you know, music and yeah. lyrics. And Look, I think Sondheim understands the female experience more than most male composers. Sure. The way he writes for women is very much how I feel a lot of times. And it's I think it's why I, I really attach to some of his characters is because the way he writes his music for those really complicated women is um, very truthful and honest. Well, and it's interesting that you say that because that's one of the main reasons that attracted him to what he wanted to do on this project is unlike Rodgers and Hammerstein, who pioneered writing songs that advanced the plot, mm. Sondheim, and he became pretty famous for this, is he wanted to write introspectives for the characters to sing about how they felt about the action and the things going on and really delve into the psyche and the emotion of these complex people. And, you know, I think he did that a lot in his career, but you see yeah. it for the first time. There Won't Be Trumpets is one of my favorite Sondheim songs. And I know a lot of people will probably say that. Anyone can whistle as well. They're <sighs> just both fascinating looks in the mind of, of a very complex person that I don't think Broadway had seen anything like that before. No, that one lyric from anyone can whistle, which is what's hard seems simple. What's natural comes hard. I mean, that's my life story. That is Christina. In a nutshell. It's <laughs> Christina. Okay. Well, so I definitely think the show could be revived. I have always, this is always a show that I felt would make a really good movie musical. And the reason I feel so is because it is so ridiculous and absurd is that you can't hide behind the tricks they do when they film movie musicals where they're like, it's not really a musical. You kind of just need to embrace it. This, yeah. this plot, this story is so over the top and absurd. Of course they're singing. You know what I mean? So yeah. I want to see colorful, cookie jar. colorful costumes. Like, and in my head, and this is going to sound so weird. In my head, I imagine the trailer, the commercial, and the <laughs> primary bulk of it is the Miracle Song. And it's like after they shout, rainbow, 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 and it's those big chords, and it's people dancing, and there's water coming out of the rock. I don't know. I feel like people <laughs> would be super into it. Oh, I completely agree. I mean, sci-fi is mainstream now. Right. When I was a kid, sci-fi was like only nerds watch sci-fi. Right. And I was one of them. You know, and... This is very much a sci-fi musical. It's fantastical, you know, and I think that that is normal now and something right. that people love. And so f I think it completely makes sense that it would become a movie musical and oh. do really, really well. In a world where Zoe's Infinite Playlist uh, or Zoe's... <laughs> I get this wrong all the time. Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. There you go. There's a movie that's different. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, WandaVision, two of my favorite shows on TV oh, that have em it. 
embraced absolute absurdism. Yep. I'm like, there's there's a there's room in Hollywood for stuff like anyone can whistle. Like, let's oh, get completely. it completely. Let's get it done. Yeah. And here's the thing. This show, I mean, we've talked about it a couple of times with the song Simple, holds a mirror to society and says, look at yourselves. Right. So that's what's right? in, okay. That's another thing that's interesting in trying to fix the show because, you know, Faye's story is important. And I think building a much more intricate relationship between Faye and Cora, what what from I think we both should ask this to each other. What okay. do you feel is the overarching um what is our takeaway from Anyone Can Whistle? What is the main message it's trying to give out and say? Everybody's different. And just because your version of sanity isn't the same version of sanity of somebody else doesn't make it wrong, nor does it make it abnormal. Absolutely. I totally agree with everything you just said. And the reason I asked that is I think one of the structural problems with the show that I don't know how you get around it because I do think it works well enough is the opening number is about this poor town that needs to be saved. And then it, in five minutes, there's technically a solution to that. You know what I mean? We don't get them to the meat of that or our complex heroine right away. But do, do you think that, that we do you think that the framing of this town needing to be saved and needing a miracle is necessary to get into the bulk of the plot or? I'm not sure. I would have to think some more on that. But I do think that there is a wonderful parallel to that. I mean, again, this was ahead of its time, but I think a lot of people could relate like Detroit. This is Detroit. Right. You know what I mean? Um, and I think that I think that you do need that because that's something that's been happening over the past 30 years in this country. I mean, even parts of Pennsylvania have been shutting down because factories, iron factories don't need to happen. Steel factories don't need to happen anymore. Right. Like everything's changing and we're on this massive precipice as a country and as a world really on like massive industry change. Right. Um, and I think well, gosh, that, like those blackouts in Texas earlier yeah. this year, you yeah. know, and it's just this opposition to embracing anything new and trying to hold on to things that just aren't working anymore and then blaming everybody else for it. Just yeah. this musical is super ahead of its time. It's very timely right now, which is why I'm saying I think post 2020 and 2021, this is a show that should be revived. All right. So the last thing we should touch on with Anyone Can Whistle, uh, there's kind of been a lost legend in lore, which is this album that was recorded in 1997 that just got released last December uh, in 2020. Um, I have not listened to this. Wait. Oh, you didn't find this? Oh, I was hoping no. that you had. Okay. So... The Carnegie Hall Concerts was meant to be the first complete, but it's live, but it's not the best recording on the planet. So J Records, which is famous for doing complete cast recordings of Broadway shows, meaning every orchestral cue, every reprise, it is their complete albums. Usually they do cut songs as well. Uh, but wow. in, in the sake of Anyone Can Whistle, it is just the entire Broadway score start to finish and they recorded most of it in 1997 with <laughs> as Cora uh Julia McKenzie who is like the Sondheim leading lady of the West End 
She was the witch in the London production of Into the Woods. She was in the original company. I think she wrote part of putting it together. Like she was part of the construction. Fancy, casual, whatever. No big deal. Uh, (laughs) And then Maria Friedman, uh, who was like the second Sondheim leading lady in the UK, plays uh, Faye. And of course, you know, sister, Sonia Friedman, who was like basically... One of the biggest producers in the West End. Isn't it uh, nice produced... to hear about a female producer of musicals? Well, you only ever hear about Cameron McIntosh, but like she's just as big of a deal. She is just as big of a deal. And, she doesn't uh, have to brag about it. And her sister's famous too. That's just like power, power siblings. I love it. Uh, but Maria, I hope Frieden... I create power siblings like that. Oh, I hope you do too. <laughs> Uh, and then John Barrowman is Hapgood, which oh. kind of, I mean, we love John Barrowman, but I think maybe a little bit miscast. Well, but. and talk about some sci-fi. I mean, Torchwood. Oh my goodness. Torchwood, Doctor Who. Oh. I mean, and when he did this, he was starring in one of my favorite musicals, The Fix, and he was doing that in 1997. So they recorded this album in 1997. Someone died. And so then they recorded more in 2013. Oh. And then they eventually released it in 2020. So it's this long... I need to go find this. It just it just came out in December and um, it's gorgeous. And it's every piece of music in the show. So there's going to be oh, stuff. Oh, I'm so excited. Yeah. It, and they recorded Faye's monologue. So Maria Friedman does a fantastic Faye's monologue oh, right good. into uh, There Won't Be Trumpets. Good. Really good. So I just, I wanted to mention that before we <sighs> head out because we're going to be posting that. Um, I love that. Oh, I'm excited. Well, I think that this one's not technically a flop because it hasn't gotten a revival. So I'm going to say it was to bad timing and the revival is going to be a massive hit. I'm putting it out there. We're putting it out into the universe that this one is going to have. It's just, it's percolating, you know? Yeah, all just the, need some extra time. All, all this other Sondheim shows have been on, revived on Broadway. This one's just waiting. It's waiting it's for a moment. It's just waiting. Well, that's our show, everybody. That's, Thanks for listening. That's the show, ladies and gentlemen. I don't, we just turned into Merman for no reason. I love a Merman. Well, ladies and gentlemen, please make sure uh, if you're enjoying this to uh, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. But Apple Podcasts, probably the best because, you know, they're great. You should give us a five star review there (laughs) Um, and like us on social. We're everywhere. And we love talking to you guys. Seriously, keep interacting with us. Keep telling us all your thoughts and feelings on these shows. Absolutely. I keep posting more and more stuff. Uh, you know, we we initially were like, ah, we don't know if people want to see all this stuff. And now it's like, here are pictures, here are videos. <laughs> people, you Did guys you like know them. this? We right. didn't until now. Till we click the post button. <laughs> um, but yes, find us wherever you uh, listen to podcasts and make sure to check out our website, www.myfavoriteflop.com, uh, where you can not only listen to our episodes, but check out our blog. Um, and I will see you in two weeks, right? With our next episode. But first, we're going to see them at After Bobo. Oh, yes. And I think we're going to have a really exciting guest for this show oh i'm so excited possibly too it's gonna be so great i think i think this one's gonna be really fierce and fantastic especially it is gonna be fierce and fantastic (laughs) and then come and join us the following tuesday for our next episode which bobby we gotta give them the clues this one's pretty good because i i'm excited we're making these harder and harder so 
The first clue for episode eight is the main character of this musical has appeared in books, films, radio, and multiple theatrical adaptations. Ooh, who could it be? Could be I a, don't know. Could be a couple. It could be a couple. So you better reach out to us on all of our socials at myfavoriteplop.com to tell us who you think it is. Absolutely. And of course, we'll see you again next week. Uh, Christina, do you have any uh, final thoughts for our listeners today? Remember to keep three Heathers and a Veronica between you and another person at all times. Okay, okay bye! bye. <laughs>